Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Loving these autumn days and nights. All that crisp air and crunchy leaves and conkers. I'm quite happy to say that I have picked the last of my plums. It has been a bumper crop this year and there has been a lot of plum and green gauge jam and chutney made in this house. But I went out yesterday and there are finally no plums and no green gauges left. There are lots of fat squirrels around as well. (laughs) Well, they sometimes pop by the office, don't they? Well, I'm doing the same with the apples and the pears, although I've been lent a dehydrator, which has turned my apples into apple rings. So we've had a great autumn, haven't we, with her starting in on our theme, which is hometown this October. And I'll tell you why, in case you might not know as a British person, it's homecoming season. And what does that mean? That means you go back to your high school American football match on the first weekend of October and cheer for your old team. And it means it's a chance to see everybody. It's the time of year everybody comes home, apart from Thanksgiving. So when does term, if you're away at college or university, when does that start then? Are you, are you Have you already gone to your uni and then you're coming back for this weekend in October or have you not headed off? Yeah, no, no, you're long gone beginning of September like everywhere else. But um, it's not just uni students that come back, you know, People our age would be going to their high school's football match. It was, And we always thought it was hilarious as teenagers to have all these old people turn up for the football matches, but they did in their droves, sort of families bringing their kids. And you go back to the high school that you went to on that weekend every year, and it's really fun because you might see some of your old friends, but you'd see generations of people that have been to your school. Looking back now, I see why it's really nice as a student to realize, you kind of look up in the stands and realize that someday you're going to be one of those old codgers watching the football match. So it's a really lovely tradition, but I don't think you've got anything like it here. Do no, you? no. Although I have heard the term homecoming parade. I always learn something on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> also happening this month is the Push the Boat Out Festival. It's taking place at Summer Hall in Edinburgh on the first weekend in November. And our open book groups will be performing some of the writing they've been doing across the year at that. So I'm really looking forward to that event. We participated last year and the event sold out. So hoping for the same response this year. Yeah, I get your tickets early because it was completely standing room only. But this year we've all, across all the groups we've written in response to Holly McNish's poem, Sometimes I Lie and Say. Um, so people had real fun with that about the, ki- the kinds of moments they don't tell the truth or they do tell the truth and the idea is that that work will all get woven together into a kind of big performance piece which we hope will be performed by some of our open book participants so there will be workshops through october in summer hall and online if you want to join us for those you're welcome to we'd love it where you can add your voice to the poems that are going to be performed and it'll turn into almost like a little theater piece you're also welcome if you're in edinburgh to come along and be part of the performance of that we'd love to see you there More information on that can be found on our website and through our newsletter. So should we get started on today's pieces? These are new writing from Rebecca Savage called Carnival Night for our fiction. And thanks to Victoria Kenefick for letting us use her poem, A Young Girl Discovers Her Reflection, which we've paired with Carnival Night. Do you want to start us off, Marjorie? Yeah, I will do. Okay, Carnival Night. Because it is cold tonight, my mother has made me wear two pairs of socks. The extra material makes my already too small wellies even tighter, and my heels are pinched painfully. 
I am almost certain that I can feel a blister forming on my right foot, blooming violently under the boot's pink rubber. To relieve the pressure, I am walking on my toes, wobbling awkwardly down the road. In addition to preventing further blisters, I am also trying desperately to avoid the cracks between the paving stones. Jessica White told me that stepping on a crack causes you seven years bad luck, and Taylor Johnson said that his sister's friend's cousin stepped on a crack just before she had her appendix removed. This is a serious concern. I am going to the zoo next weekend, and I don't want anything to get in the way of me seeing the giraffes. My walk causes my mother to sigh loudly. Eventually, she's forced to retrace her steps up the hill and pull me along in frustration. I hold my breath and hope that the near suffocation will protect me against the cracks my wellies are tripping onto. By the time we reach the road, Emily and Auntie Lou have already positioned themselves at the edge of the pavement. My mother and I move to stand on either side of them. Best friend, matched with best friend. Before we left her house, Emily and I had an argument about who would hold the torch. After a silent foot fight under the table, during which I got kicked in the shin three times, Emily won. She is now directing the torch full beam at the houses opposite, performing acrobatic stunts with the glow. Every so often, Emily turns to look at my face, ensuring that I am hating this as much as she hopes. I am, of course, but I rearrange my features into what I hope is a look of indifference. We are waiting for the carnival the annual parade of bright lights and floats that'll travel down the road and blare life into our sleepy seaside town. Its presence has been brewing for weeks. Ever since the tourists left their holiday cottages, people have been filling carts with plywood props and washing tractors ready for the big event. Meanwhile, Sarah Cowley has been pirouetting around the school playground at lunch, practicing her role as carnival princess. I won't clap for her, Emily told me fiercely the other day. When she comes past, I will just put my hands by my side and watch. Otherwise, she will get way too big-headed. I nodded in agreement, but secretly I was disappointed. I liked Sarah Cowley with her long, silky blonde hair, so light it was almost white. I even admired her chipped front tooth, a casualty of a bike accident three summers before. To me, Sarah Cowley looked exactly as a carnival princess should look, and I was impressed by her coronation. Despite our differing views on Sarah Cowley, Emily and I agree that the majorettes are the best part of the carnival. We like the way they strut confidently between the floats, waving their batons in time to the music, and we covet their sequined leotards, the way they glisten in the fluorescent lights. Every year, we beg our mothers to let us join their team, but they deem the majorettes too American and think that their tight costumes are inappropriate for the cold autumn air. We stop there. That makes me laugh, having just been talking about Americans and our homecoming traditions. I'm pretty sure that the mothers would also think that the cheerleaders and pom-pom girls at those homecomings are too scantily clad. The mothers in this story, anyway. And imagine being too American. If you think that, please don't get in touch with me personally. <laughs> Let me know. I get it enough from people on the street. I love the uh, voices in this. 
Rebecca captures the sort of things that girls of that age think and the way they express them just perfectly. That sort of walking on tiptoes to avoid the cracks. Yeah, and that way of like my sister's friend's cousin said that this happened to her and it must have been because she stepped on a crack, which, you know, as an adult, you realize is just some way of a child trying to make sense of something that's happened, right? But I remember for a while believing in it and then forgetting and then oh, horror, finding yourself stepping on cracks again. But for us, it was you break your mother's back, not seven years of bad luck. And I love the, her reasoning for not wanting to step on the crack and incur the bad luck because it might mean she doesn't get to see the giraffes. Like that's the worst bad luck she could have. Yeah, exactly. Because she doesn't want her appendix removed because... <laughs> She needs to see the drafts. It's brilliant. It's exactly the way a young person thinks. It's like, oh, well, you know, this terrible thing can't happen because it's my favorite pudding at school that day, you know, or whatever it is. Um, and I love that. It does have that really lovely for me autumnal feeling of having to put on a second pair of socks and, you know, having to decide between having stuffed toes into your boots or feeling the cold. You know, I love that. It feels so autumnal. And I, and come back to us again in February and we'll be fed up of our welly boots and our second pair of socks. But this time of year, I love that kind of crispness in the air and that kind of feeling, that, that novelty of putting on wool or putting on extra socks. It's a great one for getting us into that feeling, I think. But I love the two best friends matched, best friend matched with best friend. Although it does make me smile because I certainly also remember being taken as a child to spend a Sunday afternoon or have lunch with my parents' friends and really not being able to stand their children. Let's not ask our children what they think of each other, okay, shall we not? <laughs> so, But here's the thing I love about this little story too, is the relationship between the girls, how things get settled by kicking each other under the table. They're, they're obviously such good friends that it's a kind of sibling sort yeah. of relationship. But, you know, I remember that thing of like fighting about something and my mother giving my brother, I mean, look like, cut it out right now. And so, of course, we kept fighting about it, but in a kind of, in our sibling sort of way, which was that equivalent of kicking each other under the table or twisting someone's fingers or just poking or whatever. You can't help it, can you, as a child? Yeah. And, and I mean, the, the, the sort of adult in me now goes, surely there must have been two torches that could have had one each. <laughs> you know that's just not how it is yeah it's not you're absolutely right it's not they've obviously like annoyed their parents enough that they are not gonna push because probably the answer in my house would have been oh for goodness sake neither of you can carry the torch and I'll just carry it so that was the danger was losing the thing that you were fighting over in the first place when my mom when we pushed her too hard she would just take it off us you know rather than deciding who got it or coming up with some reasonable way to manage it she would just say fine give it to me and that was it, it went on a high shelf we can walk down in the dark I mean that's literally the sort of thing my mother would say so I love the way that Emily turns to look at my face to ensure I'm hating it and I am of course I'm rearranging my features <laughs> to look of indifference because of course the joy isn't actually getting to have the torch the joy is getting the one to be the one who gets to carry it not the thing itself I mean if she's walking alone with her mum and friend her mum's friend she wouldn't care about getting to carry the torch it's the competition there that's the joy and having won it rather than the gift of having the light you know being the one who bears the light and I love that idea of girls rearranging their features so they don't, you know, they don't look like they don't care. That's such a young person thing to do, isn't it? I'm not sure that we, we would do that as, an ad, as adults anymore. And I love the idea of people washing their tractors and filling carts with plywood props as they get ready for the carnival and it being the focus of everyone's attention. And then the thing that, that sort of sticks with me, probably because I recognize it, is that idea of really liking 
the girl's Sarah's long blonde hair and thinking she looked like a princess. Because I think as a girl, you know, that was my image of a princess too. Um, so it, although I don't think it's meant to be sad, it, it does remind me of, you know, not necessarily fitting in or fe- feeling like it would be better if I looked differently. And I'm, and maybe that's not so much that I have long brown hair and have brown skin, but that maybe every girl feels that way to some extent. I don't know. That idea of Sarah Cowley being chosen for the role just because of how she looked, it sort of dates the back in the sort of maybe the 80s or even before then. It reminds me of growing up in Carnoustie beside the seaside and having tourists that came and every Wednesday beside the paddling pool there was a Bonnie Babies competition and people would parade their babies around the side of the paddling pool and the one that looked the cutest would get picked. And I always thought it was a slightly sort of, even as a child thought, a slightly odd thing to do and then you know the winning bonnie babe would appear in the guiding gazette which was the local paper the following week and this happened every wednesday afternoon all through summer and i guess maybe i never think of adults doing it but it turns out they do but then i think there's always like a girl in school like i don't know i always feel like when i was younger there was a girl in the class that was the girl you know and so everybody just wanted to be that girl and maybe it was to do with looks or family or I don't know. Like in this case, she even admires her chipped tooth. You know, that's not rational. So it's not necessarily about what she looks like. It's just wanting, admiring her as a, as a person, which is interesting. And I kind of can't get to the bottom of that, I think. Yeah, I think there's something there about wishing you looked different or the grass is always greener, maybe is the easiest way to say it. Shall we read on? Yeah, let's do. As always, the carnival is late getting started and the crowd is beginning to get restless. The man behind us sighs and then swears loudly about how cold his fingers are. Emily and I look at each other, delighted. The memories of our torch conflict are long forgotten in the face of this new development, and we listen carefully in the hope of more expletives. We are not disappointed. The combination of boredom and several pints of West Country cider have removed any filter this man may have had. A moment later, he follows his exclamation with a series of other bad words, which both Emily and I immediately commit to memory. Years later, I will shout similar words down the phone, using them to describe the latest man I have dated. Emily will offer her own profanities and sympathy before replying with the tried and tested platitude, you know, you're better off without him. Did you hear Sarah Cowley is pregnant again? Emily continues, deftly steering the topic away from my disastrous love life. My mum saw her in Sainsbury's the other day, said Sarah could hardly control the two children she already has, never mind a third. I put my phone on speaker so that I can search Sarah on Facebook while we continue the conversation. Her page is filled with photographs of her children. A blonde boy and girl who smile angelically for the camera while sitting on benches and seawalls I recognise from my own childhood. As I am scrolling past an image of Sarah's children eating ice creams, I make the noise of disdain that Emily and I reserve for when someone from school is pregnant. We have maintained this response well into adulthood, even though we are all long past the age where a pregnancy is shocking. Emily cuts in again. Do you remember when she was Carnival Princess? She was unbearable for months. I do remember. I remember how Sarah sat on a cart in a beautiful pink gown that had been especially made for her. 
I remember how she waved at the crowd in a dignified manner, as if she really was a member of the royal family. I remember how she smiled, even though her eyes were red and her cheeks were stained by unexplained tear marks. And I also remember how Emily, overcome with excitement, had laughed and cheered as the float went past, shouting Sarah's name into the night sky. Wow, that's interesting change, isn't it? Yeah. I love it they're still friends. I do too. I love that bit about the profanities though and committing them to memory <laughs> and how it was delight <laughs> overcame the conflict that had preceded the evening's events. The torch was forgotten in the joy of profanities. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the kind of forbidden things, isn't it, that you're not meant to have. And I love the way that their the, friendship, you know, is obviously in a similar state, like in terms of the friend knowing what to say and mirroring her profanities and then, you know, steering her away as well, which I recognize, you know, that's a good friend will hear you kind of mirror what you're saying and then be like, right, it's time to move on. With a little bit of local gossip. And outrage at somebody having three children. <gasps> when they can't control the two they already have. I don't even believe that though. But it does feel like they're kind of, they're still sort of super interested in this woman's life. It's still become a, I wouldn't say she's a focus in the way that she obviously was as a child. But it's a, it's a kind of mirroring still, the kind of curious and scanning pictures. Weirdly, that's something we're now allowed to do. You know, we, we have capacity to do that we didn't when we were younger. That immediacy, that having put the phone on speaker to do it then and there, I think is interesting as well. Uh, if, if I'm speaking to someone from home and they mention someone, I sometimes think, oh, God, I must look up and see how they're doing. But I can't imagine feeling the requirement to, you know, effectively interrupt the conversation and do it then and there. I think that's a generational thing with us, Claire, because I think my children would absolutely do that. And they quite often walk around with their phones on speaker or if they're on a FaceTime call, they'll be doing something else while they're sort of chatting. And I'll walk in and chat, have a conversation with the child. And then their friend will pipe up on the phone that's sitting next to them that I thought was dead or, you know, off. And in fact, they're on a call. But it's like it's just a kind of weird, different way of being in a room with your friends, I think. So I think it's absolutely possible that somewhere between my teenagers and us, this kind of, ooh, I'm going to put the phone on speaker so I can look her up right now is acceptable in a way that you and I never would do. Or if we were doing that, we certainly would be like, hey, I'm going to put you on speaker for a minute so I can see if I can find. But I wouldn't do it for finding someone on Facebook. Oh, yeah, yeah. It would be something we were talking about. Usually at work, you know, can you remember that poet? What was that poem we were talking about? Hang on, let me, I'll put you on speaker and I'll look it up, sort of thing. But it's quite similar to the way I know your um, youngest and my middle one do it, is that if they are playing a game on the Xbox or whatever, for them, the joy of it is doing it while speaking to a friend who's playing the same game in their house, which was an absolute lifesaver and, and godsend during lockdown because it meant that they were able to maintain that connection, which I think for teenage boys is harder to do on phones the way you've just described it. The, the girls will have conversations, I think, or my daughter will have conversations with her friends regular in a way that my boys won't. But for the middle one, it really gave him a way to connect with his friends, which I could logically understand it, but at a sort of emotional level, I was thinking, A, you're playing a really boring game and B, you can't even see the people you're talking, you know. It's interesting. I think it just shows I'm a bit of a dinosaur. But yeah, looking, and then I love the end of this story. Well, what I love about it is the truth in it, which is this idea of saying something and then remembering something or being something else. I'm not sure whether Emily 
remembers disliking her or being finding her unbearable or whether she just feels she's got to say that when actually she she feels the same as the narrator yeah I don't know what's your feeling I don't know I mean I think for me the bit that stuck out in that section was the fact that her eyes were red and her cheeks were stained by unexplained tear marks the sad she was the princess and she did have a dress made for her and she was sitting up there and she may have been unbearable in the playground but the at the end of the day that didn't make her happy yeah exactly I mean I can't imagine she didn't want to do it because she was twirling around the playground yeah but, exactly um but yeah maybe she didn't like being the center of attention in that way and that which makes you wonder if she was unbearable or if in fact it was the girl's you know, resistance or feeling cross with her for having gotten it. And it doesn't feel like the narrator is the one that was annoyed by her being chosen. It sounds like it's Emily being annoyed and still annoyed with her for having these blonde children and having three of them. And, you know, it feels like wanting to push the dagger in in a way that's really not necessary or kind of unkind. And we don't know enough about Emily's own situation to know why she might not like this girl, but it sounds like she still doesn't, even though when it, she was taken with her as well. And I think that's what the, the joy of the little twist at the end is for me. It's sort of unexpected that despite all this and despite what Emily still feels, she was still caught up with the excitement of the carnival. And I think, you know, the, the kind of magic of a night or an event can overtake you, even though you have reservations or, you know, there is that feeling of you can get carried away with the kind of sentiment in the air, that kind of group mentality as it were. It can be good as well as negative, which I think is really really nice rather than being the thing we normally think that sort of feeling is which is negative I think it's I think it's lovely here yeah I really enjoyed that story thank you Rebecca um for letting us have it let's read Victoria's poem which we can chat about whether it pairs or not um it's from her collection eat or we both starve from carcanet a young girl discovers her reflection I saw her face all the time mistook it for mine Little mirror said nothing. That should have been the first sign. I got stuck at what parts of each other we would share. I want your hair, I'd say. She would smile, dress her doll. I was eight when we wore the same outfit to church, but couldn't match her ponytail sway up the aisle. After mass, adults cast their gaze down, eye scales weighing us. I watched how distorted and untidy I became in glass diamonds on the chapel floor. The priest called me a big girl. I want to be you in every reflective surface, boxed in. Instead, I stare at a plump face I do not recognize. Its green eyes replicate. I try on your tiny pointed smile. This poem is in very long lines, so long that the last one is almost into the crease of the book, and it's three stanzas of three lines. So quite long across the page, which I think matters. I love the way that she, in this poem, that she she wants to be something else. I think for me, that's where it connected with the story, that looking at something or seeing something that isn't her, that she wants to be. That idea of, it's not jealousy, I think that's too strong, but maybe envy is a better word. Um, but the things that you're envious of, you know, it's not that she's very clever or she's not that she does really well in school or it's not that she's really good at sport or whatever. It's, you know, her ponytail. And that idea of like, I don't know, I don't know whether in this poem, it's, it's a tough poem in the sense that I'm not sure who the other is. 
and whether it's the, the child she wants to be versus the child she is, or whether it's another girl who she sees a bit like in the story and doesn't, we don't get the sense necessarily that the narrator wants to be Sarah, but I, in the story, feel like when I project myself into that story, I want to be, I want to be Sarah. So I don't know whether in this poem that's what's happening. You know, I want to see another face when I look, look into a mirror rather than the one I do see. And that idea of trying to match, trying to, to wear the same things so that somehow that makes you similar or makes you, you know, I recognize that if we would just wear the same jumper, we'll be the same. But in fact, you know, as we grow older, we realize that doesn't, that doesn't work. And it's interesting, I think, how, well, my experience is that girls in particular want that or seek that in a way that you know they want to wear the same jumper they want to have the same dress or particularly when you're they're younger as you say yeah almost as a sign of kinship or something but then I wonder if that's partly because it makes you less of a standout you know and it kind of redirects the attention or diffuses the attention in a room if you're looking the same rather than an attention attracting scheme I think in my case it would have been not wanting to be seen or wanting to have the, not, not in any sinister way, not that people were paying attention to me in a sinister way, but I, I never wanted to be the center of attention. So it was a way of deflecting that somehow. Sort of blending in sense rather than the fact you're all dressed the same, making you stand out, which I think sometimes it has the effect of. If you see a group of people all dressed the same, I think you notice them more. And of course, I think in this, in this poem, it's really probably herself she's seeing, you know, and not recognizing what she sees in the mirror and wanting to see a different version of herself. So the priest calls her a big girl and it's unclear whether that's in weight or in age. I guess it's weight because she's seeing a plump child and wanting to be a different one. But it also could be that she's trying to be a younger child or just trying to be herself and not wanting to be an older you know, maybe she's dressed inappropriately or maybe she's, you know, in terms of dressing up to look like a little girl wanting to wear frilly dresses longer than, you know, um, than adults might deem acceptable. I don't know. I feel like the young these days have much more leeway with that um, than we ever did anyway. You know, there was a time when it was unacceptable to wear a foo-foo dress, as it were. Um, and it came a lot earlier than it does now. I think both of my teenage girls could happily, and they're coming to the upper ends of teenager, could happily wear a free-free skirt and just think, well, wear it if you want to. It doesn't matter. Whereas I would never have gotten away with that. Yeah, and there's a real sadness in that line at the end of the second stanza. I watched how distorted and untidy I became, you know, in glass diamonds on the chapel door. Because she's seeing herself in the adult's eyes, right? Yeah, well, or, or you know, the ref, the f reflections become distorted in whatever she's, you know, mm. it kind of envisages maybe you know that stained glass window or that reflective glass, and she sees herself, and you know, I wondered if if the distorted and tidy version of herself is what she sees. The you is the little girl she sees. She wants to be that boxed in, which is uh, you know what she's looking down on that kind of mirrored tiles, as you say, the glass. And so the you here is the, the, you know, the girl in her, in her mind that she could be or wants to be and doesn't quite get to be. And I guess, you know, for me, that ties back to the story in the sense of seeing the long, white, blonde haired girl called Sarah. She doesn't go, the narrator doesn't go as far as saying I wanted to be that child, but I, I did as a girl. I want, I have pictures of me as a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old for Halloween dressed in a blonde wig because that's what I felt as a princess. And you know, my mum tried to convince me that it was absolutely okay to have brown hair, but it wasn't in my head. I had to have a blonde wig. It was the only way 
And in some way, this poem is that it's that version of a princess that she sees and wants to be. And she doesn't recognize what she actually sees, which is, you know, I I guess in some ways makes me feel like we should never give children mirrors, you know, because what they think they are is what they are, you know, and actually what we see in them is not always helpful in that way. I I want her to keep seeing who she thinks she is, not necessarily who she wants to be, but who she thinks she is and be happy with that. But it doesn't, the poem definitely doesn't have that tone, does it? And I think there's something sinister as well about sort of linking it all to the sort of religious theme. I think it makes it, it gives it a way and a gravitas, and a, and a, it may, I think it makes you realise how seriously she takes her feelings. Yeah, and that, well, the church comes up in a lot of her poetry in different ways. So I'm not I'm not particularly surprised to see it here because you know there there are poems in the book. I, I chaired her at stanza last year, so I know bits and pieces about her work. But there are poems about you know being going to a particular kind of school, or there, you know it does it runs it's a theme that runs through a lot of the poems. But yeah, I think there is something about her recognizing seeing herself or recognizing something at church, as you say, that adds a level of kind of truth to it or that's a kind of important moment or an important place to recognize something about yourself it's different than if you're just sitting on your bedroom floor certainly if it felt like that and then the end of tying on your tiny pointed smile again you know is heartbreaking but it ties in many ways for me to the story of trying on that idea of not looking like you don't care yes rearranging your face yeah, the idea that even as little people, we're, you know, trying things on, you know, we're trying a look. And in the case of the story, hoping that it works. In this case, I suspect uh, she's looking in the mirror, you know, trying on different faces, trying on different looks. And the you there, I think, is the you she wants to see, the, the you that she thinks is her real self. Um, but that's how I read it anyway. Yeah, I agree. And what I'm not clear about is she's trying on a smile that she's happy with or whether she's trying on a smile that she thinks will satisfy the adults who are casting their gaze down, eye scales weighing. Yeah, the pointed smile is important, I think. Yeah, and it feels like she's maybe tried it before and she's using it, as you say, at the adults. And then in the title, I love that idea of discovering your reflection. And, 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 you know, when you read that, I think it's going to be a good discovery, but it it isn't really, is it? Um, and then I think it broadens out to that idea of the reflection being on what other people see of you, what other people see in you, you know, seeing how others see you is as much a reflection as a mirror on the wall. Absolutely, yeah, being reflected back by other people's perceptions of you. Which is a kind of growing up, um, but not always in a good way. You know, I want to reach into the poem and hold... hold her space wider for a little longer for her and yet here we are at least she's given us a poem to think about and talk about on it yeah and I think it links really well with the idea of Sarah that comes in the story so thank you Victoria for letting us use that poem and chat about it I think that's just about us for today Um, I'm really looking forward to getting my teeth stuck into the great uh, new writing that we've got over the coming year that has uh, has arrived in our inboxes as part of our call out so really looking forward to our november podcast and to see what we'll be talking about then yeah thanks for having us in your ears till next time